Uh, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 uh, this, this morning. Uh, the, the main verse from our Bible study this past week was Hebrews 5, 2, and so I've just picked the, uh, some other verses in that chapter as the passage for our sermon this morning. Uh, if you're able, let's stand together as we read from God's Word, from Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to, so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you please be seated and, and let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law and help us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. What does it take to persevere, to endure faithfully through the often bumpy and difficult road of life, of life in Christ as a follower of Jesus? Uh, what do we need as Christians in order to not give up? Those are, those are some of the questions that the, the letter to the Hebrews answers. Uh, this, is, this letter is unique in, in many ways in the New Testament. We don't, we don't know who, who wrote it. Some have said that maybe Paul wrote it. That's probably not right. Uh, some have thought Apollos, uh, one, of, one of Paul's companions. Uh, we don't really know uh, who, who wrote it. So it's unique in that way. It's also unique in that it focuses uh, largely, and, and perhaps more than any other New Testament letter, on the relationship between Christ and the Old Testament. Uh, Christ in Hebrews is the better Moses. He's the better Aaron. He's the better high priest. He's the better sacrifice, the better mediator of a better covenant. Uh, and while it's a letter written to a specific group of people, it, it takes the form of a sermon, the, the writer calls it a word of exhortation. You could read through the book, if you wanted to, in about 45 minutes, so a little longer than the sermon will be today, which I'm sure you're all thankful for that. The main point of, of the letter, of this kind of sermonic letter, if you will, uh, is this. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Covenant, of all of the Old Covenant, he urges them to draw near to Christ in order to persevere through trial. You see, the 
folks who read this letter, who heard this sermon read for the first time, they were facing hardship. They were facing persecution for their faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. They were, as far as we can tell, Jewish. They had embraced Jesus as the fulfillment of all that God had promised and prophesied under the Old Testament. And now, uh, the community in which they lived, many of whom had not embraced Christ, the community was putting pressure on them somehow to turn back, to, to forsake this newfound faith in embracing Jesus, to forsake Jesus, and to return to old ways, to return to Jewish faith without the Messiah. And in the midst of those pressures, this, this writer, this pastor, if you will, encourages them, uh, as we saw last week from Hebrews 4, to hold fast to their confession, to draw near to the throne of grace in order to help them in their time of need, to find mercy to help in time of need. And in our passage this morning, we see again that at the heart of this encouragement is Jesus' solidarity with us as our great and better high priest. We, we too face many challenges to endurance in the faith, to perseverance. Perhaps we're not in the same situation as they were with community pressure urging them to forsake Christ. We may find ourselves in a different situation than that, most likely, but we struggle. We struggle personally to overcome the sin that so easily entangles us. Uh, many of you perhaps are given to the extremes of shame, a hopeless shame, when you see your sin exposed. Or perhaps some of you are given to self-righteousness when you magnify your successes. Many of us deal with physical suffering. Even apart from the consequences of some particular sin, our bodies start to break down and wear down, and we suffer physically and with medical conditions, and this bears down on us. It can wear us out. Some of you might be facing pressures from the outside, from family, from friends, from coworkers, or even just perhaps the constant noise of 24-hour news cycles or things popping up on your phone, constantly screaming at you. Pressures to find our hope somewhere other than in Christ, or pressures to compromise for the sake of acceptance. Pressure to grow weary in loving others and doing good, or pressure simply to give up because life can be so hard. So while we may not be in the same situation exactly as those who heard this sermon the first time, this letter to the Hebrews, we, we need to see again and again the same thing that they needed. That in Jesus, we have a sympathetic, sinless, gentle, gentle and powerful high priest who has solidarity with us. He's identified himself with his people at every point and therefore is able to give us the grace that we need to endure as we fix our eyes upon him. So let's look at the passage and look first at Jesus' solidarity with his people which gives him sympathy for us. Jesus has solidarity with his people. He identifies with us at every point and in every way, although without sinning. Notice verse 1 talks about the high priest. Uh, he's already said in, in a couple of different places that Jesus is a faithful and merciful high priest. He's a sympathetic high priest. And here he starts to outline 
what it meant to be a high priest. What were the qualifications? And the first one we see in verse 1 is that the high priest, to state the obvious perhaps, had to be a man. He had to be a human person. He had to be one of them. It couldn't be an angel or some other non-human being. The high priest was taken from among men, from among the people, in order to represent men, in order to represent them. He has solidarity with the people. Jesus has solidarity with us. He assumes our flesh, our humanity in his incarnation. Uh, Hebrews 2 highlights this where it says that since the children, speaking of God's people, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus becomes one of us. The eternal Son of God takes upon himself our flesh and becomes fully and truly human, solidarity with us. In John's gospel, John says uh, the same thing this way. He says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal Son of God, the Word of God, who is God and who is with God, became flesh, which is another way of saying he became as much human as you and I are. Everything that it means to be a person, Jesus became when he became flesh, when he took on our humanity, minus sin. He's taken from among men. He's appointed on behalf of men. The high priest had to be a person, a man. He was represented to appoint, or represented, appointed rather to represent the whole people of God, and so he had to be one of them. Jesus was a man. He identifies with us in our humanity, a real person. He breathed, he laughed, he wept, he got tired. He experienced the full range of human emotion and human weakness minus sin. He grew, uh, Luke's gospel tells us, he grew in wisdom and in stature, just like any other child would. Don't, don't pit, don't hold against each other Jesus' deity, that he is the eternal Son of God, with his humanity, that he is one of us. And don't neglect the one for the other. There's a great mystery around this to be sure that the eternal Son of God became man and continues to be both God and man in one person. But remember, uh, rather, the significance of this. He became one of us. The Son of God became man so that in solidarity with us, he might be a perfect high priest representing us before God. You see that again in verse 1. The priest is appointed to represent men and the things pertaining to God. What, is, what does that mean? What are the things pertaining to God? It, it means that he assumes our flesh, our humanity, and in doing so, represents us before God for our sins. In the Old Testament, the priest, especially the high priest, but all the priests, had a very specific focus for their work. They had a very specific job. They represented men before God 
in order to offer sacrifices for their sins so that sin could be forgiven and a holy God could dwell in the presence of an unholy, sinful people without being consumed for their sin. There needed to be sacrifice for sins. And the priest was the one who brought those sacrifices. You see this representation in order to bring forgiveness. Uh, you see this in the very clothing that the, the priests in the Old Testament wore. Uh, if, if, if you look at the bulletin, you can see on the children's page a sketch of maybe what this would have looked like for the priest, his, his special uniform, his garments. Uh, in this uniform, uh, there were things built in to show that he represented the people of God. In particular, two things. His breastplate had stones, 12 stones placed in the breastplate, and on those stones were written all the, tri- the names of the tribes of Israel so that he bore on his heart uh, the very names of the people of God. He represented them. And on his shoulders, two stones, one on each side, each one with six of the names of the tribes of Israel, six on one, the other six on the other, bearing them on his shoulders as he went into the presence of God to offer sacrifices for sins. The priest represented the people in his work. Everything he did, he did in solidarity with the people. What he did, they did. When he confessed their sins at the altar, they confessed their sins. When he offered sacrifice for their sins, that sacrifice was theirs. When he entered the most holy place one day a year for the day of atonement, they entered with him as he bore their names on his heart. Their sins were placed upon the sacrificial offering. Blood was shed for the forgiveness of their sins. Their sins were placed upon the scapegoat sent outside the camp into the wilderness in order to remove sin from the dwelling place of God among his people. Jesus is our great high priest. He bears our names upon his heart. And everything that he does as our high priest, he does in solidarity, identifying with us so that what he did counts for you. What he did by faith, you did. What did he do? Well, here he's different than the priest of the Old Testament. In verse 2, we're told that the priests of the Old Testament were beset with weakness and therefore had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. Jesus experienced human weakness and all that that means, but he did it without sin. There's no need for him to offer a sacrifice for himself. In fact, in contrast to that, Jesus, as our high priest, obeyed God perfectly at every point perfectly obeying even in the midst of intense suffering, even in the face of temptation. Jesus endured through all of it, through the temptation of Satan at the beginning of his ministry, through the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the cross. All of it Jesus endured, suffering through it, yet remaining without sin. He is a sinless high priest, and therefore, He's able to offer a sacrifice that is perfect, one that doesn't have to be repeated over and over again because he gives himself in our place at the cross. He offers his life in place of ours. And when he does, he does it for you 
for me. And we do it in union with him. Which means if, if you belong to Jesus, then his righteousness is yours. You, you are covered over with the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when the Father looks at you if you are in Christ, he does not see your sin to hold it against you, but rather sees his Son. And the same love that he has for his Son belongs to you because Jesus represented you. He obeyed for you. And he doesn't see your sin because the penalty for your sin has been put away because Jesus, your high priest, gave himself at the cross and bore in his flesh, which is your flesh, his humanity, which is yours. He bore in his body the very wrath of God for our sins and took it away so that we are freed and can be forgiven of all of our sins because Jesus has done it all. What was real but symbolic under the old covenant with the priests there is real and fulfilled in Jesus, the better, the greater high priest. And you can see how this makes him a sympathetic high priest. It's interesting to me, and we'll come back to this at the end in a minute, it's interesting to me that the, when the world views, looks at the church, if I can just paint with a broad stroke here, that when the world looks at the church, it, it thinks that the church lacks sympathy and perhaps is full of judgment, uh, maybe full of hypocrites, however you want to put that. And yet, when you look at the world, there's an incredible lack of sympathy in the world. Just, just think for a second of how so many things in the world, uh, when, when the culture views something as a sin, they won't, maybe won't use that word, but some taboo, some transgression that somebody somewhere has committed, there is a demand for atonement. Make it right. You did something wrong and you're going to pay for it. There's a demand for atonement, and yet there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness in the world because there's no sympathy for sinners. Uh, very often, you mess up, that's it. I mean, just read the news. You'll see it all over the place. And yet in Jesus, and this is amazing, Jesus has no sin. He has no sin. Can you imagine what that's like to do anything without the corruption and the taint of sin mingling itself in there? You serve somebody and you're trying to do it out of selfless love and all the while you're wondering, do they like me? Will they approve of what I'm doing? Will they affirm me? Will I make them happy? Everything we do is tainted with sin. Jesus had no sin. And he is at the same time the most sympathetic person in the world. Because as, as the Bible study, the, the book pointed out, sin bends us inward on ourselves. It makes you selfish. It makes me selfish. I think about myself all the time, and you probably do too. I mean, you don't think about me. You think about yourself. I am consumed with myself because I am a sinner. Jesus has no sin. His love is outward-oriented in a 
perfect way. He is not consumed with himself in a self-centered, selfish way. He gave himself for others. And his sinlessness is at the heart of his sympathy for sinners, that his love reaches out to those who are in need, to bring them to God, and to remind us that in him we have a sympathetic and sinless high priest. All that we need is in him. If you think about for a moment the priest of the Old Testament, just maybe put yourself back there for a minute. Think about what that must have been like for these priests. Somebody sins unintentionally or unintentionally, and they bring to the priest a sacrifice, uh, you know, a goat or something. Say, so I've done this, here's, here's my sacrifice. And this is happening all the time. People are sinning and they're bringing sacrifices because there's this reminder, sin requires sacrifice for forgiveness, for communion with God, for fellowship with him. They're bringing these sacrifices and the priest is receiving them over and over and over again. Don't you think at some point he thinks, come, can y'all stop sinning? Can you please stop? This is wearing me out. I'm tired of all the blood. I'm tired of all the animals. It's messy. It's dirty. It's filthy. I come home and I smell because of all your sin. And I've got to deal with it all the time. And then he remembers, oh, I'm weak too. I'm I'm a sinner. I need these sacrifices. On the day of atonement, the priest offers a sacrifice for himself because he can't even go into God's presence to offer sacrifices for others unless he is atoned for his own sin, or else he'll be consumed by God's judgment. He has to be sympathetic to them. Jesus Jesus never experiences what our hypothetical high priest might have experienced, a frustration. Can't you stop? Can't you get it together? What's wrong with you people? But with open arms and loving heart, he welcomes all who come to him. If the Old Testament priest could deal gently with sinners, how much more Jesus, the sinless and great high priest, who endured suffering all his life, culminating in the cross, without ever sinning, showing himself to be perfect in his integrity and a perfect sacrifice for sins, If he's done all of that for us and accomplished redemption fully and finally for his people, we can know with certainty that we can bring all of our weakness, all of our vulnerability, all of our sin to him and know that he will never turn us away, but will deal gently, wisely, and graciously, and we should say powerfully with our sin. You you and I might be sympathetic, but we might lack power. I might be able to understand what you're going through but not be able to do much to help you because I'm weak, I'm frail, I'm limited as well in what I can do, what I can say. Jesus does not experience those same limitations that we do. He's sympathetic and he's able. He's able to give us grace. He's able to give us mercy to help in our time of need so that sometimes we keep coming, the same sin, the same struggle, and sometimes he gives us grace to overcome it. Sometimes he gives us grace to, to move past it, to leave it behind. At the very least, he gives grace again and again for forgiveness, for mercy, and for the assurance that in him the love of the Father is always ours. 
if Jesus is this kind of sympathetic and sinless high priest, then may we also be sympathetic as his people. May we be the kind of people who know the gentle, generous grace of our sinless Savior, and may we demonstrate that same gentleness and grace to one another. Uh, Within the body of Christ, encouraging one another to follow Jesus faithfully, handling weakness and vulnerability and conflict and sin and misunderstanding and all the things that come along with trying to love sinners. May we deal with one another in the same way in which Christ has dealt with us, with gentleness and grace, with sympathy. And may we also encourage one another with that same grace to keep looking to Jesus. As we come to the table in a moment, uh, let our hearts be encouraged that the same Savior who dealt gently with sinners on earth during his earthly ministry now is in heaven, his heart enlarged and expanded towards sinners as he has been perfected through his suffering and stands at the right hand, sits at the right hand of the Father, pleading for us, interceding for you, that that same mercy and tenderness that we see in Jesus during his earthly ministry uh, is the same today. And it is for all of those who come to him in faith. Would you pray with me?